This is the Piston Broke Podcast, Episode 5. Welcome to Piston Bro, the podcast where we discuss all things motoring with the people who make it happen. Buckle up and let's get started. Here's your hosts, Darren House and Barry Brown. Hello and thanks for joining us on another episode of the Piston Broke podcast and hello to you too, Baz. G'day there, Dazza. Got a bit of a mixed bag for this show, Baz? Yeah, Daz, we're going to begin our conversation talking about a new competition category, for people who love racing V8s and particularly American muscle cars. Continuing the racing theme, we're going to find out about the Vintage Auto Racing Association in America, otherwise known as VARA. We're also chatting with a Vic Roads accredited engineer and talking about brake modifications. And in the first of our, our garage segment, and that's a little hard to say, we're going to talk about your latest purchase, Baz, a CM Valiant, which is 40 years old. So we're going to find out all about the joys of owning and restoring an old car. Baz, we're going up to Queensland now in northern Australia, where we'll talk to a gentleman by the name of Craig Harris, who runs a racing team called Castrol Harris Racing. Craig, how are you going? Very good, Darren. Yourself? Oh, I'm pretty good, thank you. Great to meet you, Craig, for the first time. Yeah, very good to meet you too. The uh, category you're running is called uh, TA2. Uh, just tell us a little bit about that category. Okay, the, TA2 originated in America where they all uh, run basically the same chassis, the same motor, the same gearbox, the same differential. We brought the series to Australia in 2015 uh, and we've just set our own little regulations because in America you can have three engine builders for one manufacturer well we decided that was going to be too expensive so we have one engine supplied for the whole category so the, it's a control chassis it's contro- controlled motor controlled gearbox controlled differential and controlled suspension uh the only difference variations you can have is tire pressure because we have controlled who's your tires and you your spring rates and your shock absorbers which are controlled but you're allowed to revalve them so we're trying to make the series as competitive as possibly can be, but as also uh, cost-effective as any series can be in Australia. And it's going pretty well with uh, fan popularity and also with the drivers. How many drivers have you got in the category? We've got 35 cars sold in Australia already. Uh, I've got a couple more coming which will be sold. Uh, and at any race meeting, we're getting 20 to 25 people turning up, uh, which is just an unbelievable grid of 25 V8 Mustangs, Camaros, or Dodge Challengers at six and a half thousand RPM sounds pretty fantastic. <laughs> okay, so these are silhouette cars. They're all silhouette cars. So they're all, as I said, they're all uh, same chassis under every car. But you can have a Mustang, uh, which is a 2017 model Mustang. You can have a uh, Camaro body or a Dodge Challenger body on top. Well, that's exciting. Well, it's 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 really good fun racing, and you. For example, like if I'm racing a Mustang because I'm a Ford man, but if I decided next week I didn't want to be a Ford man, for not a lot of money, I could take that Mustang body off and put a Camaro or a Dodge Challenger body on and it could be a Holden, uh, sorry, a, a Dodge guy or a Chevy guy next week. You ran that car um, yourself for a couple of years, didn't you, or at least one year? Yeah, I did. I did it for uh, one and a half seasons and uh, my business got a little bit too busy for me. You know, when they say when business gets in front of your car racing, you should get rid of your business. But I thought I'd best not do that. (laughs) (laughs) Gary Rogers did that, I think. (laughs) I think so, yes. But uh, so um, because I couldn't devote the time that I really wanted to, and I'm all for helping young people come through. And there's a a young guy, Aaron Seaton, who is just the, the most wonderful young guy as a driver, but also as a person. And he really deserves a bit of a shoe up. And I've known his father, Glenn. We used to race go karts when we were 15 against each other. So I've known Glenn for a long time now. And I said to Glenn, I can't do this properly for the next 12 months. There's a driver to America series in this. If you win the category, you get an opportunity to go to America and have a race in the uh, American TA2 series. 
Last year, the, the, the category winner went and did a race at Circuits of America. Uh, I think if Aaron can get up and win this series, we might be able to get him to America. And the guy's got that much talent. He just might get picked up by a American team because it's awfully hard in Australia to get picked up by a supercar team unless you've got a lot of money in your back pocket. Gee, that'd be a feather in both caps, wouldn't it? Oh, it'd be fantastic for, for young Aaron. And yeah, I'd be certainly happy to do that. I was very lucky throughout my racing career. I've had some really good people behind me. One of them's been Castrol Australia. They've been with me since I was 16 years of age. And uh, yeah, they've, they've been supporting me for, for such a long time. I'd like to be able to use that effort and support that they give me to pass on and help some young guy come through. That's oh, good to hear. It must be a pretty pretty big category in the US. Oh, it's it's enormous. They've actually got three different series in the US. They've got the, like the the national series, and then they've got an East Coast and then a West Coast series. Um, so some guys run in all series, some guys just run in the national series, or some guys run in either their own coast, like East Coast or their West Coast series. It's 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 a a big category. It's actually, uh, if you go to America, it is the biggest um, circuit racing category in America for sedans. Wow, that's, that's something. So what are your plans here? What uh, what circuits are, is it going to uh, run on and um, what uh, race programs do you foresee it running on? Well, this year we're running with the AASA um, and doing their full series. We've uh, already had a race meeting at Sydney Motorsport Park. We've had one, uh, the second round was at uh, Wakefield Park, uh, sorry, Morgan Park in Queensland. Um, and sorry, that's, I got that wrong. It is at Warwick. So at Warwick Raceway, that was the second round. The, the third round is at uh, Talon Bend. And then we have another round at Winton, one more in New South Wales, and then back to Queensland for the final round. That's fantastic. So um, where's Aaron placing in these? Right at the moment, he's leading the series. Uh, every race meeting he's been at, he's set the pole position. He's set the fastest lap of the race and the, he set the lap record. Uh, and basically, he's winning most most of the races, which is, you know, for no easy effort because it's a very good field of cars. What sort of qualities have you identified with Aaron in, in terms of his driving and, and maybe even the way he carries himself? We know that um, handling the media, handling fans, it's a, it's a really big thing these days and, of course, promoting your sponsors. Uh, that's true. But I guess the biggest quality Aaron has is you can give him a car at the beginning of a race meeting, you get it back at the end and it looks the same. He hasn't bended, he hasn't bent it. He might have driven it hard, but he's driven it to a point where it's, He's been soft on the tyres and good on the brakes. The car doesn't come in you know, out of tyres and out of, out of brakes. He, he has that ability to drive a car very, very hard, very straight, and brings it back in one piece. It's, it's, a, it's a real talent. Yeah, as I recall, that was a talent that was assigned to uh, Brock when he was uh, developing and also uh, Craig Lowndes. So that's, that's uh, promising by the sound of it. It is. He, he does have those abilities. Um, you know, people try to compare him with his father, Glenn, the two-times Australian touring car champion. I don't think you can do that because they're totally different eras. But he certainly has a lot of his father's qualities and skills. And he is like his dad. He's a quietly spoken young man, uh, but very, very, um, very professional and, and very polite and respectful. How does he handle that legacy? And, of course, he's got his grandfather, Bo, as well, and a lot of history there. Yeah, that is. Uh, I'm glad he's handling it, not me. You know, you have <laughs> a fair amount of pressure on your shoulder just by your, your last name, but he handles it well. And and we've had a long chat, his father and myself with him, and he's just got to be his own person, and he is. He, 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 he handles himself as his own person. He's not expecting anything special because of who his dad or his grandfather is. It's all about him making a go for himself, which is good. So what's his uh, racing style like, uh, Craig? Is he, um, is he fun to watch? Is he aggressive? Does he move the car around? Or is he just a, a really competent driver that's um, in, set on getting an outcome? He's, he's more set on, on winning than, than being a bit of a lair or, you know, overdriving the car. And, in fact, you have a look at the car. It, it, these cars are set up. Uh, they've got big sidewall tyres and they run uh, Hoosier cross plies. 
that they, they do wander and walk on the tyre a little bit. And, you know, they, they, they wander a bit in the, going through corners because of the bag and the tyre. But if you ever look at Aaron, you'd say he's not driving it like anyone else because the, the car's always nice and neat and straight. Uh, and that's, I think, you know, an asset to him as a driver and how he's getting the most out of the sort of tyres and brakes and suspension we have. Yeah, is it um, is it the type of racing that would wear tyres out during a race? How long are the races? Uh, most races are around twenty minutes, and we have four races a weekend. Uh, and the the rules are because we're trying to have this series, which is a very cost effective series. You're only allowed two brand new tyres per meeting. So the beginning of the year, the first round, you get four brand new tyres and two spares. The next meeting, you're only get two brand new tyres and two previously marked tyres on the car, plus two previously marked as spares. So you always have at any race meeting four previously used tyres and two brand new tyres, which you can use to your benefit. So we, if, you, if you burn a tyre out in one race meeting, then you're going to suffer for the next race meeting. So how do you go with accident damage? Do you get any um, dispensation for that, or is it tough luck? No, no, no. If you, if you uh, have a tyre that's uh, maybe someone's run into you and have trawled the sidewall out of the tyre, uh, you're allowed uh, at the discretion of the um, DSO, you're allowed a new tyre, uh, but uh, most times they'll make you run it in practice beforehand to do 10, 15 minutes on it before you're allowed to use it in, in the race meeting at the next meeting. Okay, so it's got to be bedded in. Correct. So, so the whole idea is to make sure that everyone's turning up with exactly the same tyres. Condition might vary, but you're going to turn up with two brand new ones, four previously used marked ones. So everyone's on a fair even playing field. Okay, so that's the tyres. What are the rules applying to the motors? Have they got similar sort of attitude to the motors? Yes, all the motors come, when the cars come into Australia and um, PBR bring the cars in, that, that's the importer of the cars, uh, they bring the cars in and all the motors' gearboxes are sealed, so you can't pull the motor apart and fiddle with it. They're all, all the ECUs are sealed, uh, and so the, it's, a, it's a sealed com unit. If I go out there and I put the car on fifth on the grid and I think I'm better than that, I can say to the, the stewards of the meeting, I want the ECU out of car that's on pole because I think his ECU's better than mine. They'll swap the ECU's over and if I don't go any better, it just proves that there's nothing wrong with the, the, the cars, it's something to do with me behind the wheel. And what sort of life expectancy do you have of these motors, Craig? Uh, we'll probably get about three and a half to four years out of a motor before we require a rebuild. Uh, and, and the importer has in stock every part for every car that you would ever need. He's got about five brand new motors sitting on the uh, racks in his storage shed. So if you were to actually tear a brand new motor apart and it can't be, well, it could be repaired, but it would be cheaper not to. You can buy a brand new motor installed in your car for about $10,500 US. Wow, that's good. So what about the transmissions? Yes, the G-Force four-speed manuals and all the ratios are specified, so that's why the gearboxes are sealed when the car arrives. Uh, but, but they do have a quick change uh, Tiger diff in them, so uh, a little bit like some speedway cars have, you can change the diff ratios in the in the diff in about five six minutes. So diff ratios are free, but uh, gearbox ratios are fixed and sealed. Just just back on the um, cost, Craig. Uh, yes. You spoke about the engines there. What about the cost of the car and the cost of running a season? A car turnkey ready to roll at the beginning of the season with small spares package. About $130,000. Uh, that's brand new, ready to go. Um, I'm budgeting for thirty grand to run a season, but bear in mind we're driving all over Australia and there's a fair amount of that goes in fuel and transporting the cars to and from race meetings, accommodation and a little bit of side for uh, maybe a little bit of body damage. 
you said uh, you gave up racing for business, and we understand that that pressure. But um, also, as you said, you were racing go karts at fourteen, fifteen, and I remember remember you racing then. Actually, how hard was it to give the sport away? Well, uh, let's just say I haven't given it up for good. Um, I've given it. <laughs> Is that why you're trying to get Aaron over to America next? <laughs> yeah, I want him, I want him to get out on the seat so I can get back in it. <laughs> I think um, once you're a racing car addict, you're always a racing car addict. I've retired five times. I think, you know, I might come back for the fifth. <laughs> so who knows? Uh, but uh, it's one of those, it's racing's in your blood. But I do have uh, two sons coming through, and one of them's racing a little V6 Capri now, a little Group A Ford V6 Capri. Uh, he'd like to step up to the TA2, but probably not next year. Uh, I'd like them to have one more year in, in uh, uh, something like a V6 Capri rather than a 530-odd horsepower, 1,150-kilo V8 race car. So is he allowed to be quicker than you? I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong answer. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, my job has not been done properly. <laughs> I thought, thought your job was sponsor. Is that right? <laughs> Well, it is, but, you know, I, I, I want him to be quicker than me. Otherwise, why put him in the car? <laughs> <laughs> um, just tell us a little bit more about what he's doing with that Group A car. Uh, we're actually just uh, doing uh, some local race meetings at the moment. It's all about giving him some time in the car. He wanted to go – both of my boys wanted to do go-karting, but uh, I was a strict dad, and I said, you've got to finish Year 12 and concentrate on your studies and your education because – uh, and it would, you only got to look at young Aaron. He's a superstar race car driver, and he's struggling to get a full-time job as a race car driver. I said to my boys, unless you're going to be maybe Michael Schumacher Jr. or somebody like that, you're better off getting an education and doing racing on the side. If it comes works out, then you've got two bows to your arrow. Otherwise, you only got one. Absolutely. So, so my, uh, my, my thing is now he's just finished grade 12, and he's in doing uh, engineering. So he's running this year in local race meetings. Uh, as I say, maybe next year he might be ready. I'm not quite sure. We'll see how it goes at the end of the year. And I've got a very good um, coach for him as well in, in both Glenn and Aaron Seaton. They've been tremendous helping him along the way. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an outstanding um, coaching team. Pretty good, yeah. I wish I had it when I was his age. But anyway, that's the way it goes. Craig, it's uh, been great chatting to you and... Uh listening about uh, what TA2 is all about, and we wish you and uh, Aaron the best of luck, and uh, hopefully we'll see him in America next year. I hope so, hope so, mate. And you can watch the rest of our races on Blendline TV, and a lot of them are also streamed live from the racetracks. Sounds great. We'll talk with you when you take the championships out, Craig. Now it's time to talk with Phil Dunn. So Phil's been my go-to uh, engineering guru for many years uh, in the various engineering and uh, mechanical problems I've had. Tell us a little bit about your experiences and uh, what it is you do when I come to you with a problem. Engineering, of course. Other than run away. But, uh, which well, you sometimes well, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, Phil, um, how is it you came to be uh, involved in the mechanical world that you're in now and uh, what was it that sparked your initial interest in playing with things automotive? Uh, my father had a workshop that uh, I assisted him washing parts and all those sorts of things from probably as a five-year-old. Um, and then there was the customary billy carts and, you know, the odd lawnmower that needed a motor repair and I took a keen interest in getting into all of those things. And then eventually uh, when I uh, got to be a 15-year-old, I took the opportunity to take a trade on as a motor mechanic. Um, I got dissatisfied with the trade as a 20-year-old and decided to Maybe I was 18, actually. Yes, I was only 18. As an 18-year-old, I got pretty dissatisfied with the sort of um, explanations and diagnostic skills of many of the mechanics around me and myself. So I took on studying engineering. Um, 
that sort of gave me the um, background, I guess, to be a lot more forensic in my investigations. And then uh, probably 10 years later, a customer, a lawyer asked me if I'd put a report together for a, a vehicle that had a crash and find the, the root cause of the crash. So uh, I got started in this part of the, the business. It was really good fun. Well, the specifics, uh, the specifics that I wanted to get into is um, uh, a little while ago, you inspected my uh, S-Series Valiant, which is a modified vehicle and uh, is um, in need of a roadworthy certificate. And the, um, the general purpose roadworthy inspector that I went to wasn't prepared to um, pass the vehicle because it had some modifications on it. And uh, I came to you to see what we needed to do. And uh, you went through the braking system and identified a few things. And um, in the end, it distilled down to you just needed to check the brake performance. And uh, I wanted to go through with you uh, what it is you're going to do to check the brake performance and what had you uh, distill the problem down to that in the end, the thought processes you went through because it's got a, a disc brake system on the uh, car that it uh, wasn't um, released with. Well, <clears throat> uh, later model vehicles, we're not talking about yours for the moment, later model vehicles uh, have been designed to meet an ADR design rule, an Australian design rule for braking and there are minimum requirements in that. So in the case of a modified brake system on one of those cars, we need to be able to uh, test the brakes to ascertain that they still meet the requirements of that design rule. Uh, for a vehicle that is um, prior to design rules, like your vehicle is, um, there are minimum standards uh, published in government uh, gazetted papers, and we need to determined that the vehicle still meets those requirements. Um, we could, your, your brakes have been upgraded to a later model uh, specification of a Valiant. We could do a test that would prove that it still meets that requirement that those brakes came off. But primarily it's about making sure the brakes don't lock up um, unnecessarily, that the, the balance between the front and rear is okay, that they don't fade. Um, excessively and that the brake pedal force um, doesn't exceed uh, specifications that are put up for uh, different model vehicles. All right, so, so you, you don't want to break your wooden leg applying the brakes. Exactly. Um, that's not so, um, what should we say, older cars you could have much higher braking loads on your pedal. Uh, I could talk about, I remember road testing a, an FJ Holden probably in the 90s uh, for a roadworthy test and uh, I, I got a big fright when I drove down the road to uh, road test it because I was used to vehicles in the 90s having power boosting and discs and all that sort of thing. I'd forgotten what it was like to drive a 30-year-old car that had um, uh, no, no brake assistance, drum brakes, and uh, yeah, I nearly missed the corner. I, I had a similar experience with my Mustang. Um, it was uh, drum brakes and uh, I was expecting discs under the car and I put my foot on the brake and it was slowing down. But when your expectation is a, a much quicker rate of braking, it actually feels like the vehicle's speeding up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, so look, uh, older vehicles don't have to make the same specifications that newer ones do, but there are there is a minimum specification, and uh, we need to make sure that the cars meet that, especially so, in a modified vehicle. So, um, where would you do this test, uh, Phil? Do you need a controlled environment, or are you you uh, safe to do the test on the road? What what's your experience been in this? Well, theoretically speaking, uh, it should be done in a um, you know. A, an airstrip or a suitable um, testing facility. Obviously, that's difficult. We need to do um, a number of brake, uh, brake stops from 60 kilometres an hour and then uh, a couple of brake stops from 100. So we need to find um, a road that's capable of uh, allowing us to do that and that it's also safe to do it because stopping 
uh, frequently can often uh, upset other traffic. So um, we usually find a remote location with a 100 kilometre an hour uh, speed limit and set out to do you know, 15 or 20 stops to make sure the vehicle still meets its requirements. Phil, this uh, kind of testing is uh, becoming a big thing now with uh, the club permit scheme uh, that's in operation around Australia and in the various states. Um, and your business, uh, you might give that a plug too, that um, you specialise in that type of work. Tell us a little bit about what you do with the club permits. Uh, well, basically, that's just the same as doing an engineer's report for a modified vehicle, really. And uh, um, my business is, uh, I'm an individual consultant under the name Dunn. I also operate with a company called Sigmatech in uh, uh, a colleague, another colleague of mine who's got similar qualifications. And uh, we are both VAS engineers and we both do uh, legal work. Um, so we do GVM upgrades, um, engine changes, uh, personal imports, all of those sorts of things. Um, a, a, a club permit car has got uh, some minor um, what should we say? Um, are not quite required the same way as some cars are, but the requirements still meet. I have to be safe to be on the road. So, from my point of view, a club permit vehicle um, will still have to have similar uh, meet similar tests that any other modified vehicle that's on the road would have to meet. Is there any particular thing that you wanted to discuss around a club permit? Well, Daz had, a, had a, an interesting conversation point with me earlier in the uh, discussion, Phil, and that was um, in terms of brake performance, uh, when you upgrade the, uh, the braking system, does the braking have to just simply meet the, the uh, capacity that the car originally was able to meet, or are the expectations of uh, an engineer um, certifying one of these vehicles that it meets the braking capacity of the, the new newly installed system. So in other words, if I had a car that was capable only of performing um, to m maybe 85, 90 miles an hour, um, what are you testing to? The speed limit of the roads, the uh, ultimate capacity of the vehicle, or um, you know the ultimate performance of the, the brakes themselves? Well, really, the engine performance uh, is not a critical issue around braking. Um, the critical factor around braking is the mass of the vehicle. Um, you know, what you're really doing is converting kinetic energy, which is um, mass and velocity uh, related, into heat. And that's what your device is. Your brakes just convert heat, convert kinetic energy of, mo of motion into heat. So um, primarily, the test is about making sure the brake balance is okay, that when you apply the brakes hard, you don't lock up one or two or you know the rear wheels or whatever, and that under continual braking, the brakes don't fade away and you lose them. So um, really, uh, the two factor, or, or the one factor that matters is mass, and the second one is uh, brake fade. Uh, so obviously, if your brakes are fading, you'll find that the pedal pressure, uh, your pedal force goes up. Uh, you'll need to push the pedal harder to get the car to stop, and you'll be losing braking faster as, as a result of that. So mass is the big thing. And theoretically speaking, if you haven't changed the mass of the vehicle, even if you've put a new engine in it, you don't really uh, change the braking capacity or the braking ability of the machine. However, um, in either testing that we, in either engine um, upgrades uh, we do, both Andrew and myself in a Sigma Tech, we always insist upon a brake test because we want to be sure that the vehicle will stop the way it's meant to or what's yeah. safe to, how it's so, safe. So what's the, the criteria that measure how it's meant to, time or distance? Um, no, it's 
it's the rate of acceleration. So it's usually expressed as a percentage of, of gravity. So we'd be looking to achieve, you know, an average um, deceleration rate of around 0.65. Um, we quite often find that uh, we find maximum deceleration rates of around uh, 0.95. Um, and most, most vehicles easily meet the 0.65 um, average deceleration, even after multiple stops. I would think that uh, you'd probably find that difficult on the old FJ I spoke about. You might get 0.65 average for the first stop, but after that, um, it would be dropping off quickly. Yeah, that's because it's not dissipating the heat efficiently, I presume. Yep, disc brakes do that much better. Mm. With, if you're lucky, Phil, um, you can put on brakes that are that are either bolt on or, or pretty close to it. What about if you're putting on uh, a set of disc brakes on a on an earlier car, or you're upgrading, and someone has to make a, a custom adapter to make the caliper fit? What are you looking for there to make sure it's well, safe? We, well, we need to be able to um, evaluate somehow that the adapter is strong enough. Uh, we're looking to see that. The alignment of the, the caliper against the disc is correct. Um, that's not usually a big deal, but you can imagine that some people might not treat it with the proper respect about the design of that bracket. So we have to review that. We've got to satisfy ourselves that the bracket is strong enough um, and the alignment is correct. Yeah, so you're looking to make sure that it doesn't fatigue and break off and those sorts of things. Yeah. Or warp even, I suppose, that you wouldn't want it walking away from the disc. Mm. Well, that's it's a very important thing. Um, one of the things that when we do modifications, there's really only three ways of being able to satisfy the requirements, and that is to either uh, have a, a test done that, that proves that it's okay, some sort of um, physical test. Um, we can do a calculation, if you like, do an engineering calculation to prove that um, it's most likely to be strong enough. And as you talk about fatigue, that's always a, uh, uh, an interesting uh, examination. Um, but the other one would be to compare it to something. If we've got a manufactured part, and we can say that this has been manufactured to this, the new part is manufactured to match the original one. Um, we can say that that satisfies the requirements also. For now, um, we probably need to wrap it up and uh, I really thank you for the time you put in here. Time now to cross to the USA and Brian Zayner in Carson City, Nevada. How are you going, Brian? Good, good. How are you guys? We're doing well. I'm doing well, Baz. How are you? Yeah. Top of the world, Baz. Fantastic. Brian, you're involved with VARA, the Vintage Auto Racing Association over there in the States. Um, tell us a little bit about the association. Sure. Well, it's a, uh, a racing club that's specific for vintage vehicles. So they're raced um, in their 1972 or earlier um, livery. So there's no modern braking, there's no modern, um, you know, uh, suspension parts. All the vehicles have to be raced as they were raced back in their time. So it, it really gives you a, a feeling of, of what those drivers would have been uh, handling, like, you know, no power steering, um, no power brakes, those sort of things that modern race cars have. So they want it to be as close to the original racing of the 60s and 70s as possible so they're they're kind of allowing people to relive those days that that maybe like myself i wasn't old enough or maybe even alive back then to to race um those cars back then but i can experience it now and what made you uh pick that category to race in well, I've always loved Datsuns. Um, my first Datsun was a 510 and just absolutely have always been crazy about old Datsuns. And <clears throat> when I moved out west uh, from the, the East Coast, 
I found that I could find a lot more Datsuns because they didn't rust out like the East Coast. You know, the West Coast is a lot drier. So I was able to find a lot of the older vintage Datsuns. And uh, I got heavily into the Datsun Roadsters. And uh, I, I just wanted to build one and, and race it just like they had back in the 60s and early 70s. So um, picking up on that point, it's okay to build a replica. The car itself doesn't have to have a, a pre-existing race history or a logbook. That's correct. Um, Vara is is accepting of all cars, whether they're original and come with the old logbooks from the 60s and 70s, or somebody like myself decides to build one to that specifications. Uh, they'll inspect it and make sure that it meets all the, the specifications and rules, and then they'll let you race it, um, even though it doesn't have all that uh, race history and livery. Tell us a bit about the car that you built. It's a 1967 Datsun 1600, and I found it um, sitting on a desert lot in Las Vegas, Nevada, and it had been sitting there since 1982. And uh, I just, I wanted to build it into a streetcar, but it didn't come with a title. So it made perfect sense to make it into a race car. So I took that and over about five years, uh, I did all the research necessary to to make sure that it was gonna be built to specifications for Vara, but I also built it um, with the safety in mind in case I wanted to race it some other um, groups like with the SBRA. They have a little bit more stringent uh, safety regulations for like the roll cage and such. So did you choose to uh, build your car as a replica of someone else's race car from the historic time or have you just let your mind run free? Well, it's a little of both. I, I, I took, some of the ideas from some of the, the great BRE cars and, and uh, um, but the color and the, the appearance of my car mirrors that of the Jack Scoville car, which funny enough, you Aussies stole a few years ago in an auction and it races there now. How could we do that, Des? <laughs> <laughs> well, we take everything good, don't we, Baz? And, yep. <laughs> uh, everything's better in Australia, even the American products. So. Oh. Um, you've had a, a few race meetings now, Brian, but um, some of them haven't gone to plan. Tell us a little bit about the, the heartache of going racing. Well, you know, racing, the, the old adage is, you know, um, how, how do you um, uh, end up with a small fortune racing? And they say you start with a large fortune. Um, it, it's not cheap and, and you're not going to make money doing it. This is all for, for fun and bragging rights. Uh, you know, we get some trophies, but there's there's no money involved in prize money. Um, so our first year and a half um, has been pretty much learning what not to do when you go racing. And uh, we've just been very unlucky with some of the failures we've had. Um, we had a race cam that was supposed to be a race prep cam and it failed. That was our first full race. Um, it just it was a tremendous failure. The, the number four lobe um, went uh, and it basically sent the, the valve through the top of the number four piston. And that was the end of the day. Um, you know, and, and what's sad is we haven't had the same issues twice. So we're fixing issues we're having but then another issue comes up. And I think this season we finally have it nailed. We had our first race of the season, very successful, no engine problems. Um, and that's really been the only issue we have had is engines. Everything else has worked great. Suspension and, and you know, the, the rest of the drivetrain have been pretty bulletproof. So what do you attribute the failures to? Is it a original specification of your um, engine or has it just been a product failure? Some of it's been product failure and some of it's just been bad luck. Um, our last, last failure in, with the motor last year, um, we had valve seats back out and those are inserted by the machine shop. Um, that never happens. I mean, I've never heard of anybody running one of these Datsun R16 motors have that happen. So to ensure that does not happen again, uh, my good friend and mechanic uh, made some custom valve seats and then he um, uh, knurled them and then made them just a slightly oversized and then took liquid nitrogen, shrunk them and inserted them. So now, believe me, if you want them out, you're going to have to drill them out. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Is it an aluminum head or an iron one? It's an aluminum head. You've uh, also um, lucky enough to have some very good racetracks over there in the States. What, what tracks have you been to and which ones do you want to go to? 
Well, so far I've been to Spring Mountain Raceway. It's uh, sort of like a country club, but for racers. It's just outside of Las Vegas, Nevada. And it used to be a public track and it was taken over by some wealthy gentlemen who wanted their own racetrack. And they've turned it into a member's track. So it's a world-class track and they just got approved uh, this year to build their version of the Nuremberg ring. So it'll be the US version of the German Nuremberg ring. And uh, they're very passionate about their, their racing. So the track is just fantastic. And uh, so I've raced there numerous times. Um, I've also raced at Willow Springs, which is the fastest uh, road course track in the West, uh, Western United States. And then I've also run numerous times at Button Willow Raceway, which is just outside of uh, Bakersfield, California. And it's an interesting track because it's very flat, but it's extremely fast and technical. Um, a lot of people look at it because it's so flat and they're like, well, that looks kind of boring. But boy, once you get on that track, you better be a good driver because uh, if not, you end up out in the desert a lot. <laughs> so tell me, uh, Brian, we've heard a bit about the car and a bit about the tracks. How did you come to be a racing car driver? What training have you had and what's been the most heart stopping moment you've endured? Oh, gosh, um, I started racing cars, what we call autocross over here or parking lot racing. You know, you, you, they set out a cone pattern and, and you go at it and there's very little risk to damaging your car or, or getting hurt or crashing. And so I started that probably when I went off to college. And uh, my brother and I both raced uh, Datsun Z cars. He had a 240Z, a 71 240Z. And I ran a, uh, an 85 uh, 300. And uh, after racing for a while with that, I realized, gosh, this thing's slow uh, because it wasn't the turbo version. And so I bought a 95 twin turbo Z. And that's when I finally started hitting the track. And uh, so my training comes from a combination of, of uh, race classes and being in law enforcement. Um, you know, every year we need to get recertified in our emergency vehicle and operations training. So we have to be able to, to operate a heavy, fast patrol vehicle in a safe manner. So uh, it, it definitely has helped out on the track. And uh, with your tires, Brian, we've, we've had a bit of a chat uh, in the past about tires. Um, we know you're evaluating a few now. What, uh, what are you looking at tire-wise for the race car? Well, well, currently I'm running the Maxxis Victra RC1. Um, they're a great low-cost tire, but they're a race tire. The, the only problem with them is it's an 80 um, treadwear. So to give you an idea, running like a BF Goodrich or a Hoosier uh, full slick tire is a 40 treadwear. So it's twice as sticky as the Maxxis. Um, I've been able to get away with it because the Datsun's so light. So it doesn't wear out tires very quickly and uh, you don't get the, the tire going away halfway through um, a race or halfway through a qualifying run. Uh, but I know that the, there are few guys that I run against are running full on slicks from uh, Hoosier and I, I'm very competitive with them, but I want to beat them. So I've decided I'm going to start running the, the new BF Goodrich um, G-Force R1. Um, they have the same compound as the Hoosiers. Um, they're uh, quite a bit less. They're almost um, $200 less a tire, but they don't fade or don't go away as quickly um, as the Hoosiers. The Hoosiers get, get greasy, especially on hotter tracks um, pretty quick, whereas these BF Goodriches have had a, a great um, write-up on them from different racers stating that uh, the tires stay pretty consistent throughout the run. Well, let's, uh, we're out of time now, Baz and uh, Brian. Thanks for joining us and uh, look forward to having another chat soon. We're going to kick off, Baz, with your latest purchase, which is a... It's a Chrysler Valiant CM 1979 Regal SE 5.2 litre V8. Before we go any further with that, we should mention that you just sold... A very desirable car, a 1969 Mustang convertible. What were you thinking? Yeah, it was desirable, Daz. It was a deluxe. There weren't very many of those made. Um, what was I thinking? Um, I'd owned the vehicle for 16 years. Um, I also have in the garage a, um, 
uh, hardtop uh, MX-5 where the roof folds away. And I was finding um, that I was more frequently going to the Mazda to go out on a uh, soft top um, wind in the hair trip than I was in the Mustang. It was harder to fold the roof away, although oftentimes I wouldn't bother putting it back up again. But they were the main reasons. Um, 16 years, time for a change, I guess. And what was it about this Valiant that appealed to you? Um, 16 years ago, I'd uh, restored a uh, almost identical car for my son, and uh, I had the use of it for um, around about two months after he uh, bought himself a, another car, and uh, I kept the thing ticking over while he was selling it. And I really enjoyed it. It was comfortable. It was kind of a, an old limo in a lot of ways, and um, very pleasant to be in. And uh, I thought, you know, I wouldn't mind doing that. I'd um, own a uh, uh, 1962 uh, S-Series, which I've had for 20 years. And uh, again, like the, the Mustang, I think after 20 years, it's time to move on. And it, I was finding the steering heavy in that. Plenty of get up and go, but it was also very noisy. And uh, the Regal SE is not a noisy car. It's very pleasant to be in. Not many of these cars around and... Um... No doubt they didn't sell all that well in the day, hence the demise of Chrysler in Australia. A lot of crashed, a lot of uh, set down the tip. How do you go finding a car like that? Yeah, it's interesting you should say that. There there aren't that many of them. And in fact, of the uh, V8s, there are, uh, were around about 200 of those built because the V8 didn't have the uh, same kilowatt output as the um, six-cylinder did. But it's got bags more torque, which was what I was looking for. Um, they have a, uh, an unfortunate um, fault in them in that they rust around the windscreen apertures front and rear and you're right, they got tipped for that reason because it's a very difficult repair to do. Um, why or how did I go about it? I guess my original journey was to start looking for the car in um, Unique Cars, which is a magazine um, published in Australia and it was originally the go-to magazine for classic cars if you wanted to buy one. It seems to have shifted away from a, a marketplace to uh, more of a, an informative magazine these days, so there weren't uh, the kind of ads that I was looking for, and I found, um, eventually I found the car on um, Gumtree by accident, because that's not where I would have normally gone, but I began the search in Just Cars, which is... Uh, really the premier marketplace for classic and veteran and uh, modified cars in Australia. Interesting that you mentioned Gumtree because the only experience I've had with Gumtree is reading other people's comments and, and to a man or to a woman, to whoever. Uh, so they, they got ripped off. So you're actually a, a story that it, that it does work. Yeah, look, I'd, I'd be honest with you, I was worried about the, the kind of person I was going to be dealing with in Gumtree. Um, it didn't present to me as a, an auspicious place to be looking for what I was looking for. But look, um, I had a fantastic uh, experience with it. The, um, the vendor of the car was a genuine fellow. He was a, a lovely guy and we've struck up a friendship that will probably you know, outlast the car in, in the longer term. He's very interested in classic cars. So um, my experience is quite different from both what I thought and what your uh, your experiences have been. And the car was in Tasmania, a little bit far away from where we are in Victoria? Yes, um, we're on the mainland, uh, on the eastern, uh, southern part of the eastern mainland. Tasmania is uh, a little island underneath uh, Victoria and yes it was there and I was a bit apprehensive about it. and. It involved my flying down there to inspect the car to start with, which was a little bit of an adventure for me. Um, I made my mind up on the day to uh, buy the car, but I came home and checked its credentials and made sure that it wasn't stolen and written off and all of the, the things that you need to do to protect your interests when you buy a car. And um, rang the, uh, the vendor back and bought the car um, as inspected and... Um, arranged to uh, pick it up uh, a week later and I had a, a, a wonderful um, boys uh, road trip from um, Hobart to Devonport with a friend of mine from the uh, Chrysler S-Series R&S-Series uh, car club and we drove the vehicle um, 
which had been laid up for 12 years, we drove the vehicle from Hobart to uh, Devonport, it's around about 400 kilometres, 450, 500, something like that. So that was a bit of an adventure because you never know what you're going to get, you know, the, the worry is hoses and belts and, you know, we had a rule on the trip, don't touch any switches you don't need to touch in case the smoke escaped, um, all that sort of stuff. But it was a huge amount of fun, actually, and particularly from the point of view that that was its first major journey in 12 years. And adding to that risk, you had to get the boat that night. You were booked on it, no doubt. You would have done your money if you'd missed the boat. Yeah, absolutely, although I did have it insured in case that happened. But you're right, um, I had flights, um, hotels, and... Uh, and the, the, the uh, ferry trip insured in the event of uh, something like that occurring. But yes, we were very conscious of it. And, and when I um, booked our flight from Melbourne to Hobart, I made sure that we had double the amount of time that we needed. So um, yeah, it was pretty, pretty conservatively covered. You've had the car back home now for a couple of weeks. What, and you've climbed all over it, pulled things apart. What have you found um, about the true condition of the car? Um, the true condition of the car is that it's pretty much as presented. Um, what I consider myself very lucky um, to have experienced is that, as I said to you earlier, my big worry was how the car would um, travel after having been laid up for 12, ye 12 years. Um, since getting it home, I've had a power steering hose burst. Um, I've had two coolant leaks, one of which is going to require the radiator being recorded, and uh, we've got a fairly major leak in the rear main seal, and all of this stuff is a consequence of the car being idle for so long, so we were really lucky to pull the trip off without a problem. Sounds like a lot of fun, Baz, and we know how much you enjoy working on cars and bringing back old dungers and back to their former glory. No doubt you'll be uh, putting photos and words up on our Piston Broke Facebook page and our website, pistonbroke.online, and chatting here, of course, on the podcast in future episodes. Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to it, Daz. I, I love the challenge of bringing something back to life again, and uh, this car you'll see from the photos is um, not too bad. Its major attribute is that it'll probably be restored as a survivor, but uh, with all these things, as you know, with the joys that come with it, come the frustrations, and that's where the interest will be, I'm sure. Well, that's all we've got time for. Thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having the pleasure of your company again very soon.